have a Bible, I want you to turn there with us in Matthew 5, uh, the end of 5, the beginning of 6. Um, as I said earlier, we've been going through this message, and I hope that you've been following along in your own Bible. If you don't have a Bible, this passage is not in your order today, but uh, you can grab a Bible in front of you. It may be under you, or it may be in the pew rack there, and you can be able to follow along and see what Jesus is trying to say to us, because the, the power of the message is not anything I have to say. As I read a moment ago from uh, Hebrews, the power comes from the Word of God. That's where the change of heart comes from, by you reading it and God speaking it into your heart. You know, in his play, As You Like It, in Act 2, Scene 7, Shakespeare is describing uh, really the role of man as he goes through stages in life. And uh, the, the quote that he pins at the beginning of Act 7 is probably one of his most quoted phrases from all of his plays. He says, All the world is a stage and men and women are merely players. We are merely players with our entrances and our exits. And a man in his life will play many parts. And I think we recognize that passage the reason we we like to quote that passage is because we understand and we relate to what Shakespeare is saying because many times in our lives life seems like it's a stage it seems like it's a production it seems like uh, we are going through roles throughout different stages of our lives and whether we want to admit it or not whether we want to recognize it or not people all around us are watching us you are on a stage. You're on a stage at school. You're on a stage at home. You're on a stage in your workplace. You're even on a stage when you come to church. And, and whether you think it is important or not, just as you observe those around you, they are observing you. And that's what makes Jesus' warning from last week's message all the more important. It's what makes it all the more poignant for those of us that are trying to become more like Christ in everything that we do. Those that are trying to grow in their Christian faith. If you were with us last week, we started chapter 6 in this long study that we've been on, on the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount, I believe, is Jesus' not just greatest sermon, it's His greatest teaching on what it means to be a believer. Christians ask me all the time, what do I need to do to be a Christian? What does it look like to be a Christian? Jesus lays it out in plain, simple terms in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So we've been walking through this series we're calling Following Jesus. And last week, we looked at chapter 6 beginning of 6, knowing that in the original book, in the original translations, there are no chapter breaks. Chapter 5 and chapter 6, those were added later by the translators. And so really, the beginning of chapter 6 flows from chapter 5. And at the end of chapter 5, God, Jesus, is calling each one of us to grow spiritually. He's calling us out of our complacency, out of our comfort zone. Matter of fact, he uses the term perfection. He says we are to pursue perfection. The same term that Paul used in Philippians chapter 3 when he says, not that I have already obtained all of this or have been made perfect. And that word perfect means mature. And Jesus says the goal of a Christian, once you become a Christian, is not just to sit in a pew. It's not just to, to wait out your time until heaven comes. The goal of a Christian is to grow into maturity, to know more about Christ every day, so that tomorrow you know more about Christ and what He's calling you to and what He's created in you than you did yesterday. And knowing that as we pursue perfection, some of the things that we will do along the way to help us grow, to help us mature... There can be danger and traps within those very acts. He calls them righteous acts. 
Last week we studied in verse 1, he says, be very careful, these righteous acts. And, and he lists some, and we're going to look at some today, fasting and prayer and giving. But it can be any righteous acts. It can be righteous acts like uh, serving in ministry or, or joining in the choir or singing on a praise team or, or praying in public or leading a small group. Any time that we do something for God that he's called us to do to help us become more like him, to be used by him, that's what he's talking about. And Jesus warns, as we pursue maturity, as we do these righteous acts, be very careful. Matter of fact, that's how he starts chapter 6, verse 1. Some of your translations say, beware. And it is an imperative phrase that says, you need to be on your guard not to do these acts of righteousness before men. Now, it's real easy when you read that, not to do these acts of righteousness before men, to all of a sudden think that maybe he's warning us that we shouldn't do these spiritual acts in public. And that's, that's not his indication, because many of these spiritual acts you have to do in public. It's tough to sing a solo when you're by yourself. It's tough to preach a message when you're by yourself. I've done it. It's not fun. It, it serves uh, no purposes except to edify yourself. And so there are things. If God calls you to go out and feed the hungry and clothe the homeless, it's tough to do that, not in a public setting. So he's not saying be careful not to do it in public. He's saying be careful not to do it before men. In verse 6, 1, he says, to be seen by others. Now, I'm not going to re-preach that message that I preached last week, and I encourage you, if you missed it, you need to get the podcast, because it, it sets up, this verse sets up the foundation for all the rest of the verses in chapter 16. You see, this is what everything else in, in chapter 6 is going to be built on. And so you really need to go back and listen to what we discovered in this warning that he's giving us. Because you see, it's not so much about the acts themselves, but yet the motive behind the act. And last week's message was entitled, For Show or to Grow? Because Jesus is warning us that many times the very acts we do to help us grow spiritually become just theater, become just a show. Matter of fact, the term there, to be seen by them, is is a theater word. The word used to be seen by them is the same Greek word where we get the root for theater, to, to put on a show for everyone else around us. And what Jesus is warning us is that we are accountable now, not just for what we do. We are accountable for why we do it. When we stand before God, many of the things that we think we did out of purity and devotion to God, we really did because our motives were corrupted for our own recognition, for our own uh, purposes, to be recognized by men. And what he's saying here is he says, be very careful because... You do those things to be recognized by men in theater. When you do them at a ritual, as a role. Many of us, whether we want to admit it or not, uh, a lot of our Christian life is just simply a role we play. Because we fall in that trap. Now, as I told you last week, we don't start out that way. We don't start out intending to allow these things to become just a role or just a ritual or just a routine. But over time, if we're not careful, if we're not always examining our heart, if we're not always checking our motivation, these things that are good things all of a sudden just become what we do. Why don't you come to church this morning? It's what we do. Why don't you sing songs? It's what we do. Why don't you write that check? It's what we do. And you see, when we get caught in that trap, we lose the rewards. And he talks about rewards in verse 1. He's going to talk about rewards all through chapter 6. But the rewards are not something that we get later on in heaven. And we we discuss there are heavenly rewards. But what he's talking about is, is the rewards for those acts. 
You see, we do those things so that we can gain earthly rewards. But when we do them with the wrong motivation, the earthly rewards disappear. So in chapter 6, verse 1, he sets the tone for the whole rest of the passage. Be careful not letting it become routine. Now in this morning's verses, he's going to go more in depth. He's going to give us a, a clear indication of what it looks like. And I told you he gives three illustrations. And my intention originally going into this morning was to talk about all three. Cover all 18 verses, which is very uh, far stretched for me to cover 18 verses in one message. And as I began to study, I realized that uh, we probably didn't have two hours for my sermon this morning. So instead of covering all 18, we're just going to cover one. And then we'll cover the next two examples next week. But in each of these examples, he's talking about our motivation. So we're going to look at verse 2. And, and let me just say this again. To, to add an addendum to last week's message. We, we talked about being careful, not letting your acts become something that you do in front of others so that it draws attention to you instead of drawing attention to God. Well, sometimes Christians use that as an excuse to not talk about what God's doing in their life. Sometimes we, we say, well, I don't want to talk about what God's doing because it'll just draw attention to myself. And, and that's wrong as well. We should never be shy about wanting to share what God is doing in our life. We should never be shy about wanting to share what God is doing in our church and in ministries that we're involved in, as long as we understand that the focus needs to be on God and what He's doing and not on us. Paul said, always be prepared to give an answer. And sometimes we use the excuse, well, I don't want to talk about it because, you know, it'll draw attention to myself. And that, that's not a good reason. As long as God is the center. He says you, you need to have your testimony ready. You need to be willing to, to share because that's a sign of spiritual maturity. When you are growing in Christ, God is always doing something and you're always excited to want to share what He's doing. But the focus isn't on you. And understand, your testimony is not your conversion experience. So many people in the church, when you say, give your testimony, we start talking about something that happened 30 years ago or 50 years ago or 10 years ago. That's your conversion experience. If that was the last time God did something incredible in your life, then you're in trouble. Because you see, your testimony is, what did God do this week? What is God teaching me right now? And we need to be excited about that. What's God doing in your ministry? Maybe you're involved in an in, in organization that, that does ministry and you want to share all the things. Maybe God is doing something in your church and you want to share with people at work or people at school. Listen, what God is doing and what God is teaching us. We need to be willing to do that. But we need to focus on God. You see, so many times in our testimonies and even in our conversion experience, all the focus is on us. I was such a reprobate, and I was so bad, and I did this. And, and we build up all that, and then we get to the end and we say, and then God came in and changed me. Wow. See, focus shouldn't be you, because everybody else is just like you. The focus should be on what an incredible God did when you encountered him and how that changed your life. And, and what's going on in your life this week? What did God do? And so understand that we always are called to give a testimony. We just need to guard our hearts and we need to guard our motives. The same thing that he's telling us here in Matthew chapter 6. Let me read for us. We're going to start in verse 2 since I've already kind of given you verse 1. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by men. Talking about the first 
idea, the spiritual act, he's talking about giving. For I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that you may give in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Now you need to understand that, that some of the translations here, what it says is, is it says alms. And so it's, it's talking about our giving of ourselves, both to the church and to those in need. And, and recognize that in each of these illustrations, in, in giving and in prayer and in fasting and all the things that he talked, he doesn't say if you give or if you pray or if you fast. He says when. Because all of these things are a calling on the Christian's life. It's not an option. It's not an option for you to pray. It's not an option for you to give of yourself. It's not an option for you to fast. It's not an option for you to worship. It's not an option for you to serve. Because all of these things, not only do they help us become more mature, they become an outflow of our maturity. And so you and I have a call on our lives to pray, to fast, to give. And in this instance, he's talking about giving to, to the two things that most Christians are called to give to, to someone who is in need and to the local church. And now you need to understand, he's, he says synagogue, but he's talking about the local church. And in Jesus' time, they gave. We know in Acts chapter 5 that all the members came and they gave. You need to understand, as uncomfortable as it may make you realize, that giving back to God through the local church has always been a part of those who want to follow Jesus Christ. It's a sign of us surrendering everything we have, including our wealth and our stuff, over to God. It's a sign of us being willing to give Him total control of everything. If we go back to the beginning of chapter 5, we recognize that what starts all this is a changed heart. And when you change your heart, you get filled with the Holy Spirit. And I know that term gets thrown around a whole lot today. And everyone talks about being filled with the Spirit. Well, being filled with the Spirit isn't about you getting something extra. It's about you getting more of the Spirit. It's about you getting out of the way and letting the Spirit have more of you. And every day, the Holy Spirit through the Scripture reveals things in your life that you haven't given to Him. And as you give them to Him, you get more of Him. Now, when you get saved, you get all that you need. He's there. Sin in your life is blocking His control over these areas. And by giving, what we do is we discipline ourselves to say, God, it's all yours. Everything that I have is yours. And so we understand that one of the ways that we are disciplined as Christians to give is to the local body of Christ. That's who we are. And in doing that, we learn discipline, but we also learn to be obedient to surrender ourselves to Him. But we're also called to give to those in need, to those that are hurting. We do that because that is a part of our love and compassion. And it's also our way of recognizing that every one of us in this room, no matter what you have, you've been blessed. And so I give because I recognize that I have anything because God gave it to me and I've been blessed by it. You see, what Jesus wants us to understand is that becoming a generous cheerful and anonymous giver is an act that will always develop you spiritually it's one of the only acts that i can say when you can develop a heart that gives you are guaranteed to grow now did you see i threw anonymous in there and that's the key to this whole passage hang on to that we'll come back to it you see another thing i want you to see in verse two jesus uses another theater term he uses the term hypocrite to describe the Pharisees. Now, this is a term Jesus used a lot. Matter of fact, he uses it every illustration here in chapter 6. In prayer and in fasting, he talks about hypocrite. 
And hypocrite is a transliteration of the Greek word hypocrite. It's the same in Greek. Hypocrite. And hypocrite in Greek is a theater term to describe actors. And it describes actors who, in Greek theater, if you study theater, if you study literature, you know in Greek theater, they don't change out of clothes, they change masks. You know, most of the time when you see pictures of theater and you have the little white mask on, somebody's frowning and somebody's smiling, that comes from the idea of a hypocrite. Because what a Greek actor would do is they would carry these masks on sticks. And when they wanted to be happy, they would put the happy smiley mask on. And when they wanted to be sad, they would put the sad mask on. So a hypocrite is someone who wears two masks. One mask for one situation and one mask for another. And in today's interpretation, we understand that a hypocrite is someone who presents themselves one way in public that is not the same way in private. And Jesus' warning to us here is that we not fall into the trap of becoming a hypocrite. Now, hypocrites get, you know, they, they get uh, a, a bad slam. But I do have to say this about hypocrites. If there is one unique characteristic about a hypocrite that you can't say about anything else. Hypocrites get blamed for being the number one reason people don't come to church. Amen? You ever heard somebody say that? I'm not going to, church is full of hypocrites. Just saying that, though, is hypocritical, if we were honest. Because school is full of hypocrites. And the bar is full of hypocrites. And your workplace is full of hypocrites. And your home is full of hypocrites. And as long as Christians are going to come to church, there will be hypocrites in church. Saying that you don't go to church because there are hypocrites is like saying you don't want to go to the hospital because there's sick people there. Or you don't want to go work out because there's overweight people there. The reason hypocrites come to church is so we can learn to not be hypocrites. Hypocrites are welcome. We ought to put that on a sign. Hypocrites are welcome. People say, well, I can't go there. I'm not a hypocrite. You're a hypocrite. Right? Right? I mean, let's just be honest. And let me, let me clarify for you. A hypocrite is not a committed and growing Christian that struggles with sin and sometimes fails and sometimes disappoints and asks God for forgiveness and receives it and dusts himself up and tries again. That's not a hypocrite. That's a Christian. You see, a hypocrite is someone who willingly and knowingly portrays themselves in public one way when they act a different way in private. That's what Jesus was saying about the Pharisees. He's saying when you give, you ring a big bell, and they used to. I mean, can you imagine this? At the synagogue, they had a huge bell out front. And when the Pharisees came to give, they would ring the bell and say, Everybody, look, pay attention. I'm about to give. But yet after they walked in the synagogue, after they walked past dropping their offering in the temple tax, then they would walk out the temple doors or the synagogue doors and guess who was lining the streets in front of the synagogue? The hurt and the sick and the homeless. And they walked right by them. Jesus says you're a hypocrite because you pretend that you're spiritual through your giving. But in your own personal life, there is no generosity. Jesus says here a unique phrase. Verse 3 says, Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is thinking. Now that's a phrase that comes from antiquity. Uh, anytime that you say that, a right hand meant your best friend, someone close to you. We still use it today. You say, he's my right hand man. She's my right hand girl. What does that mean? That means they're close. Jesus is saying, listen, when you give... A great way to protect you from falling into the trap of wrong motives is do it anonymously. 
Don't tell anyone about we giving. See, he's reminding us how easy it is to fall into the trap. Because sometimes when we give and we tell other people and we let other people know how we're giving, that can easily become a pattern that leads to the wrong motivation. Because you see, instead of giving anonymously and letting God reward us, we give and we tell other people how much we're giving so that we might seek their approval. So we might get our name on a plaque or, or get our name in the paper. And you see, there's nothing wrong with giving a gift and being recognized for that gift. But what he's saying is he knows our hearts. And what happens is once that happens once, then it becomes a pattern. And we start saying, hey, if I give a big gift, then I will be recognized. And instead of giving out of the devotion of your heart, instead of giving out of an act of worship, we're giving so people will look at us and go, man, they're incredibly gifted. They love giving. Now let me just throw this out there. We need to be very careful when it comes to the idea of giving with the expectation of getting something in return. That's not giving. That's called a payment. You see, a gift is something you do expecting nothing. A payment is something you do expecting something in return. And sometimes we can fall in the trap of thinking that, that I need to give this because Jesus is going to give me something back. And he does promise reward here, but it's not financial reward. He doesn't say anything about he is going to give you money. God is not a cosmic slot machine, no matter what your prosperity preachers say. You can't come to God and say, okay, I'm going to write a check for this month, but I expect this much to come back to me, God. That's not a gift, and that's not worship. That is a payment of you trying to assuage your heart and manipulate a holy God. And you'll never grow if that's your motivation. The Bible says God is always going to provide for your needs. God is always going to bless you. But He does it because He loves you and you're His child, not because you wrote a big check. And if you think God is going to bless you more, if that is the motivation of your, your writing a check or giving to some group, if, if you think, well, this is me paying off my sin, because that's what we do, right? I mean, let's be honest. We, we struggle and we make a huge mistake and we think, well, I need to write a big check this week because, man, this week I didn't live for God. You can write a big check, but it will not matter a minute to changing God's heart. See, what God wants is not your money. He wants your brokenness saying, forgive me for my sin. The reward that Jesus is talking about here is experiencing a contentment that only comes from being obedient to God. See, the reward that you get when you give out of obedience, when you give of what you have, is understanding and trusting that God is going to take care of you. Learning to give anonymously, expecting nothing in return is hard. But by doing it, it allows us to guard our hearts. It allows us to focus our motivation on giving to Him. We are generous and we are called to be generous in everything that we do. Jesus said that back in chapter 5. He called you to be second mile people. We are called to be generous in everywhere we go. We are called to be generous with everything that we have, with all of our actions, all of our goods. We are called to go beyond what is expected. And that attitude will only come from a changed heart, never from someone who is a hypocrite. You see, listen, it's simple. If you, if you don't take any notes, this is what I want you to hear. God wants you to give. Because you want to, 
not because you have to. God wants you to give because you want to, not because it's something that you think is expected, not because you think it's what we do in church. He wants you to give because you have a heart that is so open to Him and, and open to glorifying Him that you want everything that you have, including your checkbook, including your money, to glorify Him, and you recognize that it's all His, and so you say, God, here it is. Listen to what Paul says. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will reap generously. For each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound in you so that in all things at all times, having everything that you need, you will abound in every good work. God loves a cheerful giver. Now let me just ask you, and you can ask the choir this because they watch you. How many of us are cheerful givers? I mean, let's just be honest. I mean, you look out and we're an offering, right? Oh man, I forgot to give. Man, I forgot to write a check. You see, when... When giving becomes routine, when giving becomes ritual, when giving becomes a compulsion, you will never be a cheerful giver. Matter of fact, you just become the opposite. You become a resentful giver. And the church is filled with resentful givers. They still give. They're just not happy about it. You can hear them. Anytime, and some of you may have said this when I got started, anytime money is mentioned, they say, oh, no, preacher's going to talk about money. Right? Maybe you don't know that Jesus talked about giving three times as much as he talked about grace in the Gospels. Oh no, preacher's going to talk about giving again. Oh no. Resentful. Where's the cheer? Listen, I will have been here 10 years in June. In 10 years, this is the fourth message that I've preached on giving. 10 years, 500 messages almost. This is the fourth message. Every message I've preached on giving has been because that's the passage where we were. Not out of intent. I didn't come and say, I need to preach on giving. Because listen, lack of giving has nothing to do with you writing a check. It has to do with a messed up heart. And we fail so many times in the church when preachers get up and preach on giving over and over and over again, trying to get people to give more, trying to get people to to write a bigger check. We do a disservice. See, the problem with giving is not the amount of giving or who's giving or who's not giving. The problem with giving is a heart that's not submitted to the Holy Spirit. And what I want you to hear this morning is not that the pastor is preaching on giving, but rather that the pastor is telling you to examine your motives, that you would have a heart that is willing to say, Holy Spirit, it's all yours. And I submit everything to you. My checkbook is yours. My mind is yours. My emotions are yours. Use it any way that you want. You see, listen, I don't want, ever want somebody to give to the church because I preached a message on it. Because if you give to the church because the preacher preached a message on it or because he was hammering about it, then all you're going to get is a tax write-off. And I don't want you to miss out on what giving is all about. I don't want you to miss out on the joy that comes from knowing that God is using you to change his kingdom. 
You see, a cheerful, generous giver comes from a cheerful, changed heart. When we give, when we give to the church, when we give to individuals, that's an act of worship. Just as much as singing, just as much as as preaching. That's why we include it in the service. Because this is a part of our worship, of you submitting. And and the reason we do is because God knows of all the things. Sometimes we're willing to give of our time and we're willing to give of our energy, but we're not willing to give of our resources. And God wants all of it. And giving in worship is a way for us to say, it's all yours. Now I know some of you give online, some of you give direct deposit, and those are wonderful avenues. And, And that's still worship. As long as every time that we give, we are seeking God's heart with what we're supposed to give. We are open to the Holy Spirit's gift and saying, God, what do you want from me this week? See, we need to be very careful, and listen to me, very careful not to make giving our act of worship a part of a routine. And so many times in the church it becomes a routine. It just becomes what we do. We fall into the trap of, of just doing the act and not involving the Holy Spirit. We just write the check because that's what we've always done. And the Holy Spirit has no say. We also need to be very careful about making giving legalistic. Sometimes I think in the church we make giving sound like paying dues to join a club. That's not what Jesus is saying here. See, let me just give you a hint. When you are praying about God's giving and you giving what God's called you to, the first place to start is not looking at your paycheck and figuring up a percentage. It's not going back and looking at the register to see how much have I given this year so far. It's not calling your accountant and saying, listen, how much more tax deductions do I need? The first place when you say, God, I want to learn to become a cheerful, anonymous giver is to ask the Holy Spirit, what do you want? That's hard. You see, you'd rather me tell you, give a certain amount, give a certain percentage, give this. But you see, in doing that, it limits what the Holy Spirit might be teaching you. And every time that we do it, every time that we write a check, every time that we reach in our wallet, whether it's out reaching somebody in need or it's here in the church, our first step needs to be, what do you want me to give, God? And to be sensitive to what the Holy Spirit is calling us to. See, it starts by searching your heart, listening to Him. Some days it may be more than you've ever given. Some days it may be less. Some days it may be in addition to what you've given. I can't tell you how many times I've given and I've prayed and said, God, this is what I'm supposed to give. And during the the move of the service, God said, I want you to give more. I said, God, I already wrote the check. I want you to give more. I remember when I was beginning to grow as a Christian and trying to add this discipline to my life. There were two or three weeks in a row that the Holy Spirit would just convict me and say, and and this is when I was a youth minister at a church and and they thought they were doing me a favor by giving me the job. So I was making like $75 a week and and I had just gotten married and I didn't have anything. And my wife would give me an allowance for the week because I always wanted to go out to eat with my friends. So she gave me a little allowance and I would put it in my wallet. And it seemed like three weeks in a row, I would be sitting there worshiping God, waiting for the offering, and God would say, give it all. I'd say, God, that's fajita money. (laughs) Right? 
That's Krispy Kreme money tomorrow, God. He'd say, give it all. So that offering would come around, and I wasn't cheerful. I'd reach him, give it. And the next week, I'd say, surely, God, you're not going to tell me to do that again. And I would begin to pray. And I'd already written a check. This was apart from what I'd already tithed or given. The Holy Spirit came and said, give it all. Oh, God, okay. The third week came along. I was smart enough not to take my cash to church. <laughs> Don't look at me spiritual. You know what I'm talking about, right? Listen, God didn't care how much it was. God was just seeing if I was obedient. God was just testing my heart. He was saying, listen, Rusty, am I really the most important thing to you? And it was a test to help me understand that when I submit everything to him, guess what? He's going to take care of me. I didn't go hungry those weeks. I didn't have to go and get help. Matter of fact, I went to lunch after I gave that, and, and I didn't tell anybody, and, and it wasn't a big deal, and, but it, it hurt because I thought, I'm going to have to eat sandwiches this week. And I brought a sandwich to work the next day. And several of my coworkers came in and said, listen, let's go to lunch. And I said, I think I'm just going to eat here. They said, no, it's our treat. They were preachers. It was never their treat. I mean, this was, this was God moving. This was God moving. You see, our motives in all of these spiritual acts, prayer, giving, fasting, reading the Bible, serving, that needs to be what we examine. So let me close. Let me just give you a hint. I'm going to close with this. In everything we do, there are a couple of questions we can ask ourselves to help us guard our hearts, to help us search our motives. Before we pray, before we read Scripture, before we sing in the choir, before we sing a special, same questions I ask myself every Sunday. The first one is, does it give everything glory to God? The Bible says in Ephesians 1 that you and I were created and redeemed to be to the praise of God's glory. That means everything that I do needs to reflect glory and praise to Him. So before I do anything, I ask myself, does this glorify God? Am I doing this so that God's name might be lifted up, so that God might be glorified? Because everything that I am, everything that I do, should bring Him glory alone. It's what worship is. And when that's not our main factor, when that's not our main motivation, we can become distracted and sidetracked. And that's what Jesus is warning about here in chapter 6, especially when it comes to giving, but in everything. Ask yourself, Am I coming to church this morning so people can see my new tie, so that they can see my new car, so that I can get in there and sing, so everybody can be blessed because my voice is so pretty? Am I coming to church because that's just what we do, or so my kids can come, or, or because that's the place? Or am I coming to church to give glory and honor to God for everything? Am I praying so that God's name might be lifted up? Do I sing this song so that people don't hear me, so that they say, glory to God? Because that's the motivation of our heart. The Pharisees had lost track. You see, the act had become the most important thing. The act had become the show, and they lost track of giving glory to God. And the second question to ask yourself, does this give glory to God and God alone? The second thing, is this for His kingdom? Because you see, really, if you boil the Christian life down to two things, two purposes, exalt the king, extend the kingdom. That's why we're still here. Some people say, well, why didn't God just take us to heaven when we get saved? Because you get to be a part of exalting the king and extending his kingdom.
Everything that you do, ask yourself, does this bring glory to God and God alone? Now, let me just warn you, we rationalize this. We say, okay, just because it helps me, then that must be helping God. No. There's a big difference between my kingdom and his kingdom. And a lot of times we exalt our kingdom and build our kingdoms and what people think about us instead of building his kingdom. You see, ask yourself, is what I'm doing, does it further his story? Does it further his message? Does it further his ministry? Does it draw people to him? Or does it further my story? Does it further my ministry? Does it draw people to me? Because if it's not about extending his kingdom, then you don't need to do it. And you say, well, pastor, what about prayer? What about, what about um, th- these devotional things, fasting? Aren't those supposed to be about helping you? Yes, but that's not the end result of it. You see, if you read the Bible with the only goal being that you know more about the Bible, then you've missed it. Because the Bible wasn't written to be something you study for study alone. If you're praying simply so that you can get more intimate with God, then you are missing it. You see, the reason I study the Word of God, the reason I I want to be more intimate with God is so that I can explain to people around me how incredible He is. And the more I get to know Him, I want other people to know what I got to know. You see, if all I do is for me, then I just become stagnant. Does it exalt the King, give Him glory, and does it extend the kingdom?